Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wisdom of Friends podcast. Thank you for tuning in. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. This is a podcast where you get to learn more about your friends and community, their wisdom, their trials and tribulations, timeless insights and their secrets. Now, let's get into the show. Please welcome your host, Cal Aras. Hello and welcome to Season 9 of Wisdom of Friends Show. I'm your host, Cal Aras, and today I'm super excited to be introducing you to a good friend of mine, Bill Stainton. Bill has won many accolades over the years. It's hard enough to win one Emmy Award. Bill has won 29. More important, as executive producer of Seattle's legendary comedy TV show, Almost Live, he led his team to over 100 Emmys of their own as well as 10 straight years of number one ratings. Along the way, Bill worked with other successful entertainers like Jerry Seinfeld, Ellen DeGeneres, and Bill Nye, the science guy. He's also written for HBO, Comedy Central, and The Tonight Show. And recently, he was inducted into the Speaker Hall of Fame with the National Speakers Association. Friends, in this episode, Bill and I talk about a host variety of topics, including how to be your best when it matters most, leadership under pressure, and how to become the gold standard in your industry. Friends, I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. So without further ado, let's welcome the one and only Bill Staten. So good afternoon, Bill. Uh, welcome to Season 9 of the Wisdom of Friendship. I'm really excited and delighted that you took the time to be on this program. And uh, let me start off by saying how we met. Uh, I heard you do a presentation at the National Speakers Association Pacific Northwest chapter here in Seattle, as to be specific at Mercer Island uh, Community Center. And I was just totally blown away by just your mastery of the stage and your presentation. And, you know, as I learned more about your background and what you've accomplished and in your career, in your uh, television and broadcasting uh, career, as well as your professional speaking career, I knew having you on the show and having you share your wisdom is going to be a treat for our audience. So welcome to the show. Thank you. And yet somehow you held off until season nine. So I'm not quite sure how to how to read that. I knew I wanted you on the show, but let's wait nine years just to make sure. <laughs> no, I just wanted to make sure that I was up to the mark to get you oh, on the show. Go. Okay. Good, good save, Cal. Good save. All right. So anyway, so one of the ways we, uh, Bill, we kick off for our show is by asking our guests a simple yet profound question, and that is, What's your favorite quotation or philosophy that you live by, and how have you applied it to your life? Wow, that's a good one. I don't really have a fa- I mean, I've got loads of favorite quotations, and they're from all the, the usual suspects. Uh, you know, Shakespeare, Lincoln, Mark Twain in particular, pretty much anything Mark Twain ever said. As far as a, a philosophy, I don't really have one of those either, except to say... Um, one of my philosophies is, and I don't always live up to this, is to figure out who it is that you want to be and then be act as if you are that person. Like, who do you want to be two years from now? Who do you want to be five years from now? Who do you want to be 10 years from now? Who do you want to be at the end of your life? You know, what do you want people to say about you? And, okay, start being that person now, um, at, at least as much as you can. And that, 
I know that sounds similar to fake it till you make it, which some people think sounds inauthentic. I disagree with that, by the way. Um, I think there is something aspirational about that. But it really is like, okay, so what what are the values that you would like to be remembered for? What are the values that you want people to, to say about you? And, um, and then take a hard look at are you living those values? And usually my answer is no, but at least I know what I'm shooting for. No, that is so great, Bill, because I think it reminds me of that uh, simple formula that people have it backwards. It's like, you know, most people focus on the have and then do and be, but it's really about be the person right now and do the things that you can by being that person so you can have the results that you aspire. Yeah. And <clears throat> no, I really... Uh, you know, no, it, affects every, it, it affects the way you are. It affects the way you talk. It affects the way, it affects the way you walk. Um. Who is it? Somebody I know who uh, is a coach, and they uh, they asked their one of their clients this is for in person coaching. Okay, walk across the room. Okay, good, got it. Now walk across the room the way a multimillionaire would, and not that you know, not that cash has to be the goal, but the posture changes. You know, walk across the room the way a successful person would walk across the, the room the way you would like to walk across the room five years from now. Okay. Then start walking across the room that way now because you're right. When you become that actors know this, there are basically two ways to, to approach acting. And I've studied a little bit of acting. There's the outside in and there's the inside out. The inside out is method acting, Stanislavski, that sort of thing. Outside in is kind of like, uh, there are some actors who, you know, once I once I put the clothes on, once I put the hat on, once I put the fake mustache and beard on, then I start to feel the character, and that 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 works. Um, the method way, you know, method acting, the Stanislavski method, is no, you you go to inside. What is that person? What is the person? You know, what is it that drives that person? Who is that person? And then your body will become that, uh, and it's kind of the same with aspirational things. You know, once once you kind of start to carry yourself, once you carry the physicality of who it is you want to be, your body kind of picks up on those cues and goes, oh, oh, okay, oh, we're doing this now. Okay, okay, we're going to be this. Oh, we're successful. Okay, got it. And then you've got to do the things that enable you to catch up to it. But that's that's really kind of the first step. No, I really like that. And it's like really the mind follows the body and the body follows the mind in a way. And it's, uh, exactly right. and it's, it's great. And, and just for the benefit of the audience, uh, Bill Stainton, as most of you know, has won 29 Emmy Awards. You know, it's hard to win one, but he's won 29. But most importantly, as the executive producer of Seattle's legendary comedy TV show, Almost live, he led his team to over 100 Emmys of their own, as well as 10 straight years of number one ratings. So that is really, Bill, a marvelous and amazing accomplishment. And what I want to ask you is this: that I'm looking at your biography, and uh, oh, <laughs> and and one of the things you uh, that came up interestingly, which I didn't know personally, was that you grew up behind a dairy farm in the Amish countryside of Lancaster, Pennsylvania. So, and the question to you I is... Still, I can still milk a cow with the best, <laughs> well, with the second best of the No, that's so great, Bill. And, and so my question to you is, uh, did you always know growing up that uh, entertainment was your uh, profession or that's where you wanted to be or how did that come about? And the reason for me asking that is, 
you know, we get a lot of these uh, questions from our audience who are trying to find their calling, trying to find their uh, the happy medium between what they're really good at and like what they enjoy doing, but they seem to struggle with it because of obvious challenges. With sure. And so, what would you say to that? How how did your journey unfold in that regard? Well, it was interesting I, I, as I grew up. And again, when, when, when people hear that, that my literally my backyard growing up was an Amish dairy farm. Uh, we were not Amish. I had a lot of Amish friends, though. Um, and uh, um, I never could have predicted my life path because I've always kind of thought, and I'll be curious to know, to know what you think about this, Cal, because you're a student of success as well. I've always kind of felt there are two paths that ultimately successful people take. Uh, the one path, and, I, and I, I have friends who uh, who follow this path, is that at some point they figure out this is where I want to be. You know, this is the target. This is the goal. And now what's it going to take to get there? What do I need to learn? Who do I need to meet? What kind of schooling do I need to have? What skills am I going to need to have? You know, so basically it's kind of a an extreme focus. This is the goal. And that goal may be 20 years out, but what's it going to take to get there? Uh, I have huge respect for those people. I don't have that kind of discipline. I wish I could say I did. Um, I didn't necessarily choose. It just happened that a second path that I see a lot of people do, and this is the path that I took, was you know you kind of go through your life, and at some point you come to a fork in the road. You know, oh, I can do. You know, I've got these two opportunities. I can do this. I can do this. And you know what, this one seems the most interesting or the most challenging or whatever. You take that one and then you come to another fork. Oh, you know what, now I'll take this one. And as long as you keep taking the right roads, the ones that feel like this feels right to me. Now, this is not a foolproof method, of course. But for example, you mentioned part of my biography. In fact, a probably one of the most defining things in my life was that I was the executive producer of Almost Live, which is was this legendary sketch comedy show in Seattle. Um, it led to everything. I got to hang out with legit rock stars. I got to work with some of the most talented people in the world. I won a whole lot of Emmys. My team won a whole lot more Emmys. Um, it led to virtually everything else that, that I've done. Well, I could never have predicted, oh, you know what? I think I'll produce a local comedy TV show because there wasn't anything. If I had set that as my goal, it, 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 it couldn't have happened because that didn't exist. It was just a matter of, you know, I come here and, oh, now I've got this option. This one. And I've, I've pretty much always chosen the option that was the least safe. I read something someplace just a couple of days ago from somebody who said that the advice they always got was choose the safe one. Um, and I guess safe in terms of maybe job security or something like that, perhaps. But I, I always chose the one that, I thought was going to be take me in a slightly different direction. And that felt like this is closer to what I want to do. This is closer to who I want to be. And that ultimately led me to almost live, which didn't exist when I was a kid growing up behind that Amish dairy farm. And in fact, it never existed anyplace else. There were, we were one of a kind. We were in Seattle. There was no other show like us except for Saturday night live, which of course was, you know, the big time in New York. Um, so that's, that's kind of what the, the way I've, run my life is whenever there's a choice, okay, which one, um, which one, which one do you think? Now, again, like I said, I, I, I still really admire the people who can like pick a target and shut out all the distractions and go for that target. I find that sometimes the distractions 
are the thing that really define us. Like which distractions are most appealing to us? Um, because you never know what's going to add a different facet to who we are. I mean, you know, what do you what do you think? Again, because this is this is your <coughs> turf as well. No, I think uh, what you just said uh, really rings, uh, definitely resonates with me as well. Because I spent, I mean, I've done both in my career when I look at my life. I mean, there has been a point in my life where I've been like really mission focused, you know, got the blinders yeah, on, have- and I've been just, you know, driving myself towards a goal, and I've accomplished it. In some cases, it took me uh, more than like 10 years to achieve a goal. I remember there was a time when I was back in my uh, high school days, I had this goal of like, you know, going to the United States or going to Europe and studying at this really prestigious university and getting all these really accolades and credentials mm-hmm. and working for a Fortune 100 company and all that. And all that, all those dreams I accomplished, but it took me like 10, 15 years to do that, but it took, you know, I had to literally put those blinders on. Uh, but I'm at a point now in the last couple of years uh, where I've also realized is that, you know, sometimes uh, it's it's really uh, you will miss out on the the joy of the journey when you're trying to kind of drive to the destination, if you will. And uh, and and for me now, the flip side of it is like, how can be how can I be more present in the moment so I don't miss out on opportunities that I would normally have just overlooked. Uh, right, right, and 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 kind of noticing those kind of things so that now I'm more present. And then, and the other thing is. Uh, the also the other side of it is as well. Okay, what can I? How can I use this current situation I'm in uh, to the best of my ability and kind of help me learn and grow? Like for example, right now I work uh, in the aerospace industry. I'm at a mid-level management position, and one of the things that I've taken on is not as a goal to reach uh, any certain. Uh, you know, accomplish any titles or, you know, any status positions, but it's really about how can I be the best person I can be? How can I be the best leader I can be? And how can I inspire my team day in and day out? And, you know, what that experience is going to be like. So, so it's, it's really been a journey for me unfolding. I don't have the answer, but that's, that's how I feel right now. Yeah. And I don't think there's necessarily a right or a wrong answer. And I I love what you said that you've kind of done both because I think, you know, you were very focused, and clearly, when I was doing almost live, I mean, for 15 years, I was very focused on on making a success out of that endeavor, and and it worked out mostly because I surrounded myself with amazing people. Um, but a lot of times, we do spend our younger years with that real focus to get those to get the the trappings of success, and I don't mean that pejoratively, because uh, some people say, "Oh, the trappings of success are meaningless." No, I mean money is. Important as we're speaking now, I don't know when people are going to be listening to this, whether it's going to be, you know, in a month or in 10 years. As we're speaking now, we're in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. And there are a lot of people who are really concerned about about income, about the future, that sort of thing. Um, It helps to have really focused and build up some some cash. So I'm not saying that those trappings of success aren't important. They certainly are. And you want some prestige in your field because that certainly helps. Once you achieve some of that, though, then you kind of realize now I've got a little bit of freedom to um, to play a little bit. Once once you get that, it's this is going to be a weird analogy, um, but you can always edit this out. You know, when you become a TV producer, you know, you you want to be an Emmy winning because that's 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 the you know that's that's the peak, that's the pinnacle. 
to be an Emmy award winning TV producer or TV writer, TV, you know, I mean, whatever you, but in my case, producing was my, my primary uh, gig in TV. You want to be an Emmy award winning producer. Okay. So I got that. And once you get that, then the next goal is that you want to be a multiple Emmy award winning producer. Well, I got that about six minutes after I became an Emmy award winning producer. I won two in two categories back to back. And then I won 27 more. But to be honest, after those first two, the rest kind of, I'm not going to say they were th th that they're meaningless, but you kind of realize, you know what, this isn't all that important. It's important if you don't have it. It's like people, um, a person I knew really well was always really upset because she didn't have a college degree. Well, I have a college degree. Nobody's ever asked me about it. I'm glad I got it. But, um, it always seems so much important, so much more important when you don't have it. And then when, when, when you get it, you realize this isn't the be all and the end all. This is just, you know, this is just a benchmark. This, okay. I'm an Emmy award winner. I'm a multiple Emmy award winner. Okay. Now you still have to go to work on Monday. You still have to make a good show. You still have to make a life, you know? So, um, I have no idea what the point was for that, but I thought it was an interesting analogy, or at least when I began talking, I thought it was an interesting analogy. I'm starting to second guess that now. No, I think, no, this is great. It's, it's uh, really, you mentioned about, you know, distractions is what is uh, sometimes most appealing because that helps you grow and develop yourself in areas that you would have normally overlooked. And uh, I think uh, I totally agree with you on that. So let me ask you this, Bill. Uh, when you look back at your life up until now, now you've had amazing successes in uh, multiple dimensions or domains of uh, your career and life. But what would you say was that breakthrough success moment for you? Was there like a particular moment that you knew that, okay, this is the turning point because life is now not, it's never going to be the same again from this point on. Is there like a moment that you recall from your past where everything was like, this is the game changer. This is what's going to totally define my trajectory of life. Yeah, I think, well, the easy answer, which very well may be the correct answer was when we started Almost Live, when we started the TV show. Because, again, that led to everything else. After that, there was no going back. I mean, this, that completely ch changed the trajectory. Um, I was a TV producer doing little minor things here and there. And to be honest, I thought that Almost Live was going to be another one of those minor things that I did for like three years here in Seattle, and then I'd move someplace else. And it became a hit. Uh, certainly here in Seattle, we were also syndicated on Comedy Central for two and a half years. Um, Angelina Jolie was a fan. Tony Shalhoub was a fan. I mean, you know, we had, you know, all of a sudden people, you know, and again, because it was big in Seattle, I mean, our heyday was the 90s, which was also the heyday of grunge. You know, the people we were hanging out with were, you know, Eddie Vedder and Kurt Cobain and Dave Grohl, you know, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, people like that. A kid who was, you know, whose backyard growing up was an Amish dairy farm has no right to think that you're going to be hanging out with Pearl Jam and Nirvana and being seen as equals to them in Seattle. Now, outside of Seattle, of course, their fame far eclipsed ours. But in Seattle, it was kind of an equivalent amount of fame uh, for, for a while there. Um, so, you know, you, you never, so, so basically Almost Live kind of opened up this world to me that I never thought we could have. Now, there was a point in Almost Live's history during season five, we had an original host, Ross Shaver, who's a great guy. And he, he, he left. He, he got a gig in Los Angeles, which he could not turn down. And um, 
I promoted somebody else to the host, a guy named John Keister, who was also great, but in a different way. And season five was when that transition happened, and season five was terrible. It was a miserable season. Uh, John was not doing well as the host, because basically I tried to plug John into Ross's format, you know, a format that we had developed to capitalize on Ross's strengths, which were not John's strengths. So it, that's kind of inconsequential. The point is that it was a miserable season. And the show came really close to being canceled. And to be honest, I would have welcomed a cancellation. I was not having any fun at all. But then I thought, okay, you know, I've got to make a decision. Do I want to sal- try and salvage this show? Whether I, you know, whether I can or not, I don't know. And so I spent that summer, the off season, thinking, okay, what, what can we do? And you start going through all the possibilities. You know, can we bring in a coach? Can we do this? Can we do that? And I won't go through a whole long thing, but eventually – you know, I kind of figured out with the help of my team, oh, really the problem is that we're asking John to do Ross's show. So let's look back and go like, wait, what would John's show look like? What is it that he's the best at? How can we rebuild a show? Once we did that, we went from an hour to a half hour, which enabled us to get this great time slot of Saturday at 11.30 p.m. Now, we were the NBC affiliate, which means we could push Saturday Night Live back a half an hour. We were the only um, station in the country that was allowed to do that. So all of a sudden, we were the lead-in for Saturday Night Live, and everything changed with that also. So that's also, you know, out of desperation. You know, the show was failing. I was miserable. My entire team was miserable. And then we just had to make a decision. You know, what do we do? And we thought, let's give it one last shot. And we stepped back, and we looked at the bigger question. And um, and that changed everything. That, that is a beautiful example, and I want to kind of ask you a, a related question to that. And because a lot of people, uh, you know, when they're having, when they experience a momentum in in their career or their profession, profession, they continue doing so. But when they run into an obstacle, let's say, mm-hmm. when things don't work out as planned, one of the things that I'm, what I'm hearing you share was that you took a step back during that summer and then reevaluate and reassess the whole situation. Right. And so what was your process like? What did you, can, can you break down the process for us? Like, do you have a specific process that you went through? Yeah, I can. Um, and I didn't know it at the time. I only know this in hindsight, looking back and seeing what, what happened. Um, what happened was, uh, let's see, how can I keep this kind of brief? The big problem was that the show, as, as we had it with Ross, was a comedy show, but it was also, it was kind of like half Saturday Night Live and half the David Letterman show. You know, so we had guests on, we did interviews. And, um, and Ross was really good at that. And John was terrible at interviews. And if John were here right now, I'd be saying the same thing. And he'd like, yeah, yeah, I was. He was terrible. So that was the huge problem. But that was a, a big part of the show. Yeah, at least half of each show was, you know, interviews. And um, so at first I started thinking, you know, my, my first thought process is how can we fix the interviews? You know, can we, can we, again, can we hire a coach for John? Can we increase the budget and bring in better guests? At that time, Seattle was not a real hotspot. So it was hard to get, you know, national named guests to come in. Um, you know, so, and so I, and I spent, I spent days and days thinking of how can we improve the interview segments? Um, and then in one of these, like tear your hair out, which clearly I've done too much of, um, moments I thought, Oh my God, this is just, I'm getting nowhere here. I just, uh, wouldn't it be great if we didn't even have to worry about interviews? Wouldn't it be great if we didn't even have them? And that led to another question then. The question was, okay, well, if we didn't have interviews, what would we do with that time? 
thought, oh, well, okay, can we bring a band in? Can we hire, bring in more comedians? Can we do, you know, what? Well, oh, can we increase the sketches? Do we have the budget? And, I, and days and days is like, oh my God, this is just, oh my, wouldn't it be great if we didn't have to fill that time? Yeah, you know, wouldn't it be great if we just didn't have to worry about that time? Well, what would that do? Well, if, if that were the case, I mean, we'd be cutting out half the show. Well, that means we'd be a half hour show. At that time, our airtime was Sunday at 6 p.m. Not exactly the best time slot for a comedy show, but as a half hour show, and, and, and as, a, as an hour show, we couldn't get a, you know, a great late night slot. But as a half hour show, we might be able to. So basically what it was, was my first question should have been my last question. My first question in each case was, how can I fix this? How can I fix this? How can I fix this? As opposed to, do we need this in the first place? Do we really need this in the first place? And that's when we started looking at, okay, what are John's strengths? Well, how would they fit into a half hour? What, what if we just did a half hour show that capitalized on John's and our strengths, which is just strictly sketch comedy, um, sketch and, and, and other kinds of comedy, but no, no interviews. And all of a sudden it was like that scene in now the younger viewers may not know this, but the scene, it's a great analogy though. That scene in The Wizard of Oz, when it's all in, you know, the movie starts off in black and white, and then Dorothy's house is in the tornado, lands, and she opens the door, and all of a sudden the world is in color. And it was one of those kinds of moments, like, wait, if we're a half hour, and we had the possibility, because of some things going on with NBC at the time, of actually becoming SNL's lead-in, man, all of a sudden the world is in color, and we're opening up new possibilities, that reignited my excitement for the show. Remember, I told you that during season five, that part of me, actually a, a big part of me, would have welcomed cancellation. But it was all that, my, my takeaway from that is, virtually every time now, and I don't always do this because occasionally I keep slipping, but whenever something's not working in your personal life, in your business life, the first thing to ask yourself is, does does this need to be done in the first place? What if it's eliminated? Now, if it can't be eliminated, then the question is, okay, do I have to do it or can it be outsourced to staff or to somebody I hire or something like that? And then if, okay, if I do have to do it, do I need to learn anything new? Okay, th then you do it. But that way you only have to deal with the really important stuff. It's amazing how many things can be eliminated, but most of us don't get to that as a last resort. But, you know, let's make that the first, let's make that the first question. What if we just didn't have to do this? What, what would happen then? Well, I, I could have saved myself probably about two months of, of pain trying to reinvent the show, but I'm glad I went through that process because at least now in hindsight, I can see what the process was and what it finally led me to. I love this because it really, it comes down to the quality of questions you ask gives you the quality of results. Mm -hmm. And 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 it seems like the two breakaway questions or the breakthrough questions, if you will, one is normally people try to address it is how can I fix this? How can I you know address this? But I think sometimes you just have to take a step back and say, do we really need to fix this in the first place, or right. what would it look like if it's eliminated completely? And if it cannot be, can it be delegated? Do I have to do it? Can it be outsourced? And oftentimes that shifts the perspective and the paradigm and of whatever you're dealing with. I, I love this process. It's it's really amazing. So, Bill, my next question to you is, <clears throat> you know, uh, 
who were your mentors growing up? Like, well, were there any particular people or uh, actors or producers or entertainers or, you know, authors that you looked up to that really inspired you or you wanted to emulate? Or, and if so, what fascinated you about them? There were a few, two of whom nobody would ever have heard of. That's my grandfather and my uncle. Um, they're both, uh, my uncle is still alive at age 92, 93, something like that. My grandfather has, has been gone for you know a decade or more now. Um, they were both civil engineers by training, but they were lifelong learners. They were interested in everything. You go into their house and you go into, the, and they, and they each had like a library with books on everything. Uh, a lot of books on history, a lot of biographies, philosophy, um, uh, classic novels, you know, and, you know, Shakespeare, uh, Twain, you know, just, you know, uh, Dickens, all that sort of thing. But they were fascinated by everything. My uncle, in his 90s now, um, still has one of the sharpest minds I know. He still reads voraciously on everything. He reads about the arts. He, he He's passionate about music and he knows about it. He's passionate about Shakespeare and he knows about it. He's passionate about science, climatology, all those things. If there's something he wants to know more about, he'll read, but he'll also pick up the phone and call the local university and say, hey, who's uh, who's who's your professor who, who knows the most about this? Yeah, yeah, can I talk to her? And they'll just say, hey, yeah, I, was, I, I just had this question. I mean, he'll call, he'll just Pick up the phone and call next. Well, first of all, who's not going to take a call from a 90-year-old guy who who's, has an intelligent question? But, you know, he'll just do that. And it's, it's learning. Look, at 90, he's not looking to make more money. He's not looking to apply for a job. He's learning because he loves learning in all kinds of fields. And my grandfather was the same way. I'm so glad that that's a part of me also. Just learning all kinds of things for the sake of learning. And it also helps because, one – it makes you a more interesting person if you know a little about this and a little about this and a little about this. One, one, kind of one of my little mantras is always, I, I like to know enough about virtually anything to be able to ask a question that would be of interest to an expert. I don't have to be an expert in Russian history, but I like to know enough that I can ask a question of a Russian history expert that they'll go, you know what, that's an interesting question. You know, because most of us in our own areas of expertise, when people say, what do you do when you tell them? They'll ask you, like, the question that everybody asks. But every now and then, somebody will ask the questions like, you know what? That's good. And then you have a great conversation. Um, and I've had lots of great conversations with people where they, where they end up saying, oh, my gosh, you're a great conversationalist. All I did was ask that first question. And then they just started talking about something, you know, which is fascinating to them. So, so one, it makes you a more interesting person. And second, you never know. I, I talk a lot about innovation, creativity, breakthrough thinking, which is all about connecting dots, connecting two or more things that other that finding connections that nobody else has found. You know, um, um, Johannes uh, Gutenberg did it with you know a wine press and movable type. Those both those things existed. Nobody had ever connected them until he did, and all of a sudden, ooh, there's the there's the there's the printing press. Look, I invented the printing press. So by being a lifelong learner and being interested in all kinds of different subjects, not just here's my topic and I'll learn everything I can about that, there is something to be said for that, but also branching out and saying, you know what? And now, because again, right now we're kind of in the middle of, of, of a quarantine situation as we're recording this, we've got time. You know, your, your house can be the greatest university in the world. There are courses available for free or very little cost. 
from major universities, from all kinds of other sources. You can you can tour the great art museums of the world, the Uffizi, the Orsay, the Louvre, the 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 the, the, the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam, all that. It's all available to us. And you never know which one of those is going to be that dot that if you start, you know, all of a sudden you might read something about a topic that has no relationship to what you do for a living, but you'll go, you know what? What if I took this idea, this thought, this solution and apply it to my world? And all of a sudden you're connecting a dot that nobody else would have connected because nobody else had that dot because they didn't tour the Orsay online like you did. They didn't take that course in you know medieval history um you know that what you, you never know which dot it's going to lead to the breakthrough idea so collect as many dots as you can so anyhow so those those are two of my big mentors specifically because of that no that's uh, that's amazing incredible i mean it's really all about learning and and you've done your fair share of learning in different domains i mean uh Looking at your hobbies and interests, like you've, you enjoy scuba diving, mm-hmm. flying airplanes, and also, as you say, irritating blues club bands. <laughs> I, <laughs> I so, 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 so let me ask you about uh, when did you really get into uh, flying airplanes and was uh, playing instruments also part of uh, your journey as you were a producer or was that something you picked up on the side or – I've, I've been a musician all my life. I can't remember when I did. I'm, I'm primarily a drummer. I think I started playing drums when I was about four years old. And then when I was seven, I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. And like most kids, you know, at that time, it's like, okay, they're, they're, the world changed there. Um, and my biggest distraction here at home is my Steinway grand piano. That's, it's always screaming out to me, come play me, come play me. Um, and uh, then I start to play and it screams out, stop, please stop. Um, uh, but it's, you know, and, and guitar, bass, blues, harmonica. I mean, yeah, I mean, music has been a huge part of my life for as long as I can remember. Um, flying, uh, my dad had an airplane, but sold it before I was born. So I never knew him. I mean, I, I, I never knew him as a pilot. He never got his pilot's license, but, you know, but he had an airplane, you know, a small airplane. And, you know, and there were, so there were like flight magazines lying around the house and, uh, I was kind of interested in that and never did anything with it. Never did anything. I always thought, oh, it'd be cool to learn how to fly one day. But that's a big, I mean, that's, it's expensive. Although I look back at what I paid and what you have to pay now. But, you know, it's, look, it's expensive. It's time consuming. And it wasn't until I moved out to Portland, Oregon, got a job in TV there, that I finally thought, you know what, let's just, okay, maybe getting a pilot's license is too big a goal. But what can I do today? Today, I can look through the yellow pages, because that's where it was back then. This is 1984, 83 or 84. I can look through the yellow pages and find a flight school. And I can call and I can schedule one lesson. Just you know, I can, That's something I can do today. I can't get my pilot's license today. And when I think of the expense, it's like, oh, my gosh, where, you know, I don't even have that kind of money. You, you know, when you start to think of that, it becomes overwhelming, and so you don't do anything. But then, so, you know what? I can do something. I'll take one lesson. So I did. I scheduled a lesson for that for that Saturday. You know, just a couple of days later, had that first lesson, and my instructor Terry at the end of the lesson says, "Okay, so what? Same time next week, or do you want to? You know, what do you want to do?" I said, "Okay." So I just did one lesson at a time until all of a sudden it's time. You know what? It's time for my first solo. Okay, did that. You know, a few weeks later, so you know what? Let's let's do the check ride. I think you're ready for it. And I passed the check ride. I got my pilot's license in 1984. 
And, uh, I've, you know, I've been a pilot ever since. Uh, I've also gotten my glider rating. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a glider pilot also. Um, but a, a lot of it is like, what's, you know, we all have big goals or some of us have big goals and it seems overwhelming, but okay, but what can you do? What could you do today? What's the one thing you could do today to start taking action? Because so much of the time, Cal, and I know you know this is true. Sometimes, I mean, the hardest step is always the first step because it's, what is it, Newton's law or something that an object at rest tends to stay at rest until acted on by an outside force, but an object in motion tends to stay in motion. So the, whole, the hard part is getting that, you know, pushing that rock, getting that cogwheel going. And that's just the first step. And the first step can be a very easy step. But once you do that, there's a little bit of momentum. And it's easier to build on momentum than it is to start that momentum. One of my favorite ways to spread the message of a mission here at Wisdom of Friends is through speaking. Over the last two years, I've delivered keynotes and workshops at professional associations, small and large companies, on topics related to engineering happiness, how to boost productivity, employee engagement, and workforce stability for bottom line results, and the science of happiness and the art of fulfillment. So if you think I'll be a fit for your upcoming event and want to learn more, visit the speaking link at wisdomoffriends.net and get in touch. Again, it's the speaking link at wisdomoffriends.net. Reminds me of that quotation by Lao Tzu, a journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step. And uh, Absolutely. But, but you got to get up off your butt and take that first step. And take that first step. Absolutely. That's great. Uh, so another curious, and this is more of a curiosity for me. I mean, uh, what books have you gifted or reread over the years? Anything that particularly comes to mind that's been like, really a game changer for you in your professional and personal growth and development? I'm sure it's kind of like a pretty broad question, but was there anything particular yeah, that comes to no, mind? I'm sure you asked this question of other people and I thought, oh, you know, I, I mean, I wish I had this profound, like I should say things like, you know, the Bible or the Torah or Viktor Frankl or, you know, those kinds of things. I, you know, I've, I've, I've read a lot of that, but, um, um, you know, the books that I reread um right i mean i tend to read broadly i just finished a book called divorced beheaded survived a feminist reinterpretation of the wives of king henry the eighth so that was very interesting uh i'm re i'm reading uh rereading a book by bill bryson i love bill bryson i love virtually everything he's written um he's written books on a lot of travel books I'm reading one of his books about England now. He's written books about the history of the English language. He's written a fairly respectable biography of Shakespeare, uh, a phenomenal book called Something Like a Brief History of Practically Everything, or something like that, um, which is just this amazing look into the world of science. And here's our, you know, here's, go, let's go inside the atom. Now let's go out of the solar system. Let's, but, but, he, but he has an amazing way of writing, which is great. Um, uh I love good fiction. I've read a fair amount of Salman Rushdie. I had a, I had a chance to um, meet him uh, a number of times. Uh, first time was at an exclusive cocktail party because he, it was at a university, and my sister had happened to be a teacher at that university, and she was one of the hosts of the cocktail party. So, like Midnight's Children is just an amazing piece of work. Um, I, he, I mean, he's he's amazing i think sometimes his writing kind of gets in the way of what he, i mean it's a little too um 
oh my god, that's amazing writing, which can kind of get in the way of, of, of the narrative. But um, but I don't really have any great suggestions. Um, one book, one book. I mean, my, my profession now as a keynote speaker, one book I think all speakers should read is a book called Made to Stick by Chip and Dan Heath. You've probably heard me talk about that book. Yep. It was not written with speakers in mind when I first talked to Chip Heath about it. He said, I, we were writing it for like college professors. But it's basically, how do you get your message across in a memorable way? That's good for anybody in any profession. Certainly it's good for professional speakers. But that's such a crucial skill for anybody to be able to do, no matter what level of leadership you're in. If you aspire to any level of leadership, uh, your ability to communicate your message in a in a, a memorable way is going to do more for your career than virtually any other thing you can possibly do. And that's a phenomenal book. Phenomenal book. I have given that to a few people. Great. And we'll oh, include Pillars all of, of these. Another one. I've, I've read Pillars of the Earth a number of times. I love that novel. Okay. And we'll include all of this in the show notes for our audience. So uh, moving on to uh, more of a philosophical question, Bill, here. Um, <clears throat> What's your definition, having seen the ebb and flow of life, what would you say is your definition now of a successful life or a good life? I think it has to be, and this is going to be over, overly simplistic. I'm sure I'm not the first person you've, you've talked to who says something along this line. But um, at the end of it all, did you make a difference? Are you leaving the world a better place? Than, than, than it was when you came into it. Now, sometimes we don't have any, but like in, in my particular sphere of influence, did I leave it a better place? I was just listening to something just yesterday. Um, and it was, it was another speaker who was quoting a TED talk from, uh, from a person who was like a um, ambulance driver. And so he's been with a lot of people at their moment of death. And he said, and I, I don't know if I'm going to remember this correctly, he said, but they always have like three three things. It's, it's like these three universals that like in the moment when you know you're going to be dead, like within minutes. Um, and it's not always all three, but these are the three that keep coming up. The first one, and this it's, it's in no, no particular order, but the first one is they always want to forgive somebody or ask forgiveness of somebody. You know, I've wronged somebody. I want to forget, or, or you know, I want to forgive my dad. I want to forgive something. You know, would you please let my you know, ex-wife know that I forgive, you know, whatever. So there's that. And so the good lesson there is like, let's not wait until we're in that motorcycle accident. Uh, the second one is, will anybody remember me? And the third one very closely related to that is, did I make a difference? You know, did, you know, it was my life just, I mean, was it just this blip, this footnote in not even a footnote, not even a punctuation mark, or did I make any kind of, you know, a positive difference? I mean, you know, horrible people have made differences, but did I make a positive difference? Did I, you know, somebody else said it also. I mean, this has been said by a lot of a lot of a lot of people, but um, you know, it's 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 it sounds hokey, but somebody once said, write write your eulogy, write the eulogy that you would like to have somebody say about you. You know, write, write the eulogy that you would love to have said at your funeral and let that be your guidepost. Let, let, let that be your strategic map for your life. And, you know, it, it kind of goes back to what we talked about in the beginning. Like, who do you want to be five years from now, 10 years from now, at the end of your life? Who do you want to be? 
And if you can, the closer you can be to that person, the closer you can be to the person who's like, yeah, that person, I'm glad that person lived. I'm glad that person was around. You don't have to be a multimillionaire. You don't have to have, have to have a wing of a university or a museum named after you. Um, but hopefully you left some ripples that will, that make the world a better place. That's success. I love it. That's that's amazing. And I like those uh, three things that you mentioned. It's uh, forgiveness, anybody, if anybody would remember me, and did I make a difference? I, you know, that's really fantastic, Bill. Uh, I want to switch gears here, Bill. And one of the things that I want to kind of uh, talk to you more about is some of your areas of expertise. And these are some of the professional keynotes that you uh, do at organizations and associations and uh, all over the nation. And mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that one of your most popular keynotes is to how to be your best when it matters most. And my question is, you know, this is really comes down to, uh, you know, the clutch gene, if you will. You know, you see all these uh, players and performers, you know, some of them can perform at, under pressure when the game is on the line. It's game seven of the NBA finals. And there are some right. who can, you know, deliver. And then there are some who just choke in that moment. So my question to you is, do you think the clutch gene is a real thing? you think that people are born with it? Or is that something that people can develop? What's your take on that? I think they can absolutely develop it. And there's, there's kind of this common myth that there are some superhuman people. And we like this myth because we like to think that there's, yeah, I mean, we write movies about these people. We write books about these people, the people who rise to the occasion. That, you know, when the pressure's on, that's when they do their best work. And we like to think that we're that person, too. We like to think, oh, you know what? Yes, I'm under pressure. I'm under a strict deadline. But you know what? I do my best work under pressure. We've all said that. I'm sure you've said it. I've said, I do my best work under pressure, which is really just an excuse to procrastinate. You know, uh, that report is due on Friday. It's Tuesday. You know what? I don't really have to start working till Thursday because I do my best work under pressure. Well, that's not true. We don't. Nobody does their best work under pressure. Nobody. Um, And the scientific studies back this up. And you think, well, no, Bill, I've seen that. I've seen that professional basketball. You know, I've seen Stephen Curry, um, you know, hit that, you know, that that three-pointer at the end of the game to win the championship. Tell me that's not performing under pressure. Well, here's my question. How many times do you think he has made that three-pointer before in his life in practice? A thousand times? 10,000 times, 100,000 times. He didn't do anything in that moment that he can't do 364 days out of the year. What separates him is that he didn't choke. It's not that he rose to the occasion. All he did was, is, is what he was perfectly capable of doing any other day, 364 days out of the year. But what separates him is that he doesn't choke when the pressure's on. He doesn't do anything more than he's done before but he doesn't do anything less. He doesn't rise to the pressure, but he doesn't succumb to it. He doesn't fall to it either. Most of us fall. And the reason we fall is because we tend to, we tend to assign more importance to something when the pressure's on. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, I don't know. How, how, how good are you at parallel parking? Are you, are you good at it? Are you bad? I mean, for some, I'm, I'm, I'm really good at it. And some people I know are just terrible at it, but, um, yeah, probably uh-huh. an eight out of a ten, I would say. Yeah. Okay, that's not bad. So, 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 three hundred and sixty-four days out of the year, you see a spot, you you can pull it off. You know, you you, you can parallel park, respective, you know, yeah, respectively, right? 
But what if you're on that first date or that, or you're taking that important business contact out for that important dinner and the spot is right in front of the exclusive restaurant that you had to wait two months for? In other words, this is the night, this is the championship. You know, nothing can go wrong. That's when you're going to screw up the parallel parking. Not because you're not a good parallel parking, but because we assign more importance to, oh my God, nothing can go wrong. Nothing can go wrong. Nothing can go wrong. And then, and then we start to screw up. Um, Bill Belichick, you know, like him or hate him, you know, the coach of the, uh, of the um, New England Patriots, you know, they've gone to the Super Bowl, what, six times, something like that. What he t- and actually one of my neighbors uh, um, had him as a coach because uh, my neighbor played with the um, 49ers and Belichick was like the defensive coach or something like that there. And he backed me up on this. What Belichick tells his players the morning of the Super Bowl when they're going out to play the Super Bowl. I mean, this the Super Bowl. It's, it's as big as it gets. He says, treat it like any other Sunday. Now, can you? You probably can't because, look, you're not going to fool yourself into not knowing it's a Super Bowl. But he says, look, this is a football game. You know how to win a football game. Just go out there and win a football game. You know, don't make it, you know, don't make it bigger than it, you know, th- than it needs to. Because the, the more we hype things up in our mind, the more that becomes the noise. And the whole thing about performing well under pressure is to eliminate the noise. And just focus on the mission at hand, because otherwise the, the the noise is what makes us. So once we kind of quiet the noise, then we can just go ahead and do that parallel parking. We can hit that three pointer. We can win the football game. I love it. I love it. And it's uh, <clears throat> one of the things that comes to mind is I was uh, recently uh, reading an interview with my uh, LeBron James, whom I'm a big yeah. fan of, and you know he's a uh, he's a Laker. I'm a Lakers fan now. And uh, one of the things that he was asked is about, you know, how does he handle pressure? And and one of the things that he mentioned that kind of like stuck with me. And he said that pressure, he doesn't feel any pressure because pressure is really a privilege. It's an opportunity yeah. to shine. And, yeah. And it's, it's now it goes back to your point. What you said is, you know, it's very important to make sure that you not only practice 364 days a of the year, but you also do not add too much pressure on yourself so that it kind of like takes away from your performance in a way. Right. You've got to, you've got to be both confident and competent. Yes. And confidence ideally comes from competence. Although we all know people who are confident without having the competence to back it up. And those people are just frauds. Um, But there's a great quotation from Wayne Gretzky, arguably the greatest player in, in the history of hockey, at least in the top two or three. And somebody asked him once about pressure. They said, like, how do you feel when it's like, you know, the final game of the Stanley Cup and, it's in the, and, the, and, the, and the clock is counting down and there's like, you know, seven seconds left and this is making it right. And all of a sudden the puck gets passed to you and, you know, it's, it's right there, that shot, that second, that singular moment. And it's all riding on you and what you do. And there's 17,000 people in the stands screaming and there's millions more watching on TV. How do you deal with that? And Gretzky's answer was, I live all season for that moment. Wow. <laughs> now, That's now, amazing. Mike, wouldn't you love to be able to feel that way when the pressure's on in your world, whatever that world may be to whoever's answering this? You know, when, when, you, when you've got to meet with that irate customer or when you've got to give that report to the shareholders and when you have to pitch your product to that, you know, to, you know when, you, when you have to make that sale, uh, whatever, wouldn't you love to be able to walk into those moments feeling like, I got this. 
I live for this moment. And that comes from competence and confidence. I agree. And that's, that's really beautifully said. My next question to you, and as you know, most of the audience who are listening to this are also professional speakers or speakers who are aspiring to be professional speakers. And so in, in your experience of having done so many keynotes and, uh, what would you say is the art of creating an impactful speech now for, let's say, for a professional speaker or for an executive who's trying to make one of the key presentations to the venture capitalists? They got this idea they want to present. So if you had to like break it down in a structure, we all know that it's got to be uh, – got to have a good opening, have a good ending. Right. But what, what would you say is like if somebody could focus on these three or four things, that can get them like halfway – almost there, you know, the kind of thing. What would you say? Yeah, actually, well, actually, here's the one thing that will get them half, halfway there is before thinking about, okay, what's my great opening? What's my, my great closing? First of all, you have to know what is the one thing that I'm trying to say? The one thing that I'm trying to say, whether it's a professional keynote in front of an association of 2,000, 5,000, 10,000 people or whether it's that, you know, again, that meeting with the shareholders or something like that, that important speech, that important sales speech. What is the one thing that I want them to walk away with? What's the one thing I want them to remember a month from now, a year from now, whatever, if they remember anything at all? So that's that's crucial. And that's a mistake I see a lot of speakers make because a lot of a lot of speakers early on. And look, I'm, I was guilty of this as well. You kind of do speeches and you kind of meander. Yeah, oh, here's a good story. Here's a good story. Here's a good story. Let's call that a speech. And it kind of goes, it's kind of zigzag this way and this way and this way. And your audience is left trying to figure out, okay, I don't, where are we going here? You know, what's, what's, what's the point of this? What is the point? Um, so the first thing, again, is, is to figure out, okay, what is your one, what's the most important thing that this audience, whoever that audience is, Again, whether it's a paid speech for a corporation or an association or it's something that's that's some speaking that you need to do in conjunction with your regular job. Like what what is what is that one point? I mean, and really think about think about that, because a lot of people get it wrong or they make it too complex. Well, my one point is a 14 letter acronym is no, no, that's not one point. Um, So figure that out and then realize that you're taking your audience on a journey. And the journey has to lead them to that point because you can tell them and tell them and tell them. Ideally, by the time you get to the, to the end of your speech, they're going to go, well, yeah, of course. Yeah, duh. Um, so it, it all comes from that. And then what I tell my, my, my coaching clients when, when I coach clients on developing a keynote. So first figure out that one point and then figure out three different aspects of it that you can talk about. And those become the three main parts of your speech. Um, but they're all, and it could be like, here's how it's been done in the past. Here are two options of how we could do it. And here's the, here's the third option, which, which I think is the best. Okay, that's one, two, three. That's three ways of looking at it. Um, it could be, um, here's my point. You know, this is going to be my point. And here's how it relates to the company. Here's how it relates to your specific team, and here's how it relates to you as an individual. Again, a three-part way of looking at something. Um, here's how it works for for the community, for the family, for the individual. Here's how it. Here's how 
one person did it. Here's how a second person did it. Here's how you can do it. Um, uh, here's where we are now. Here's where we want it. Here's where we can be. And here's how we can get there. Okay. Okay. So again, these kind of three part structures, but they're all, but they're all logical. They all, they're all in service to the main point. And then there, then there are other things you can do, which is beyond the scope of this conversation. Okay. So how do you make those three points live and breathe? How do you open the speech and close the speech? Cause as you know, those are the two most important parts. That's, that's beyond the, the beyond the scope of this. Um, but those, those, those are kind of the main things that, that, that I tell people when I'm, when I'm coaching them, especially aspiring speakers. Although even some seasoned professionals, it doesn't hurt to get that kind of refresher because we've been doing it for a, a long enough time. And I, I know you know this too. Sometimes we tend to kind of forget the basics because, you know, we've been doing it for so long and we get away with it because we've developed a certain set of chops. You know, you know, we're, we can kind of razzle dazzle them. And all of a sudden, you realize, you know, I've kind of forgotten the foundation. Let's let's go back and revisit that foundation because you know I'll still have the razzle dazzle, but let's have it over a stronger foundation. Or maybe maybe the world has changed, but my speech hasn't, but needs to. So. Yeah, and I can attest to the fact. I mean, I've learned so much uh, from your workshops. I mean, one of the things that you talk about, and just to recap here, so basically the three things that you mentioned was the one point, which is the month after message is what you refer to, is that what does the audience take away from? uh, Right. And then during the speech, take them on a journey, like a hero's journey, if you will. And and then finally, uh, the three parts to it, how does that relate to the three different entities uh, that pertains to your speech and yep. i really like that that's that's amazing uh and then we'll include uh information for contacting bill for his online coaching and workshops and in the show notes as well so cool. Thank you. i highly recommend that and uh, it certainly uh will take your uh, speaking abilities and presentations to another level uh moving on to this and by the way i just want to also congratulate you bill you're recently inducted into the professional speaker hall of fame so that's correct amazing achievement and I think a day after that, you wrote this beautiful blog post, and I, I was just amazed, and I was taken away by that totally this amazing, incredible blog post. And <laughs> you said, what I wrote. I can't wait to hear. Well, I'll remind you. You said something to the. My goal is to, and and this came from one of the conversations you had with another Hall of Fame colleague of yours, and he said to you, "My goal is to re-earn my place in the Hall of Fame every time I speak," and. So tell us about that mindset, the responsibility, the expectations, because it's not just a, it's not just about achieving a certain title or a status, but it's also about maintaining it. So tell us about that process and the mindset. Well, it's true. Once once you have a title like that, uh, Hall of Fame, um, you that that's that's a privilege. It's a responsibility. I mean, you know, you you, you have to. I mean, people are now going to be looking at you a little differently. Um, when you're a multiple Emmy Award winner, people will look at you a little differently. Okay, I mean, there are certain expectations uh, that come with any kind of a title. When you're the CEO, people look at you differently. That's 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 the Hall of Fame. That's the Emmy Awards. That's I mean, that's that's a position where people look and um, there are certain, you know there are certain expectations. If you're the head chef as opposed to the sous chef or whatever, you know, that comes with responsibility. The, you know, more is expected of you. Um, Carrie Fisher once said, weird person to quote, uh, the late Carrie Fisher, Princess Leia. Um, 
she said something. I'm, I'm going to paraphrase this because I don't have it entirely memorized, but something she says, there's never a point where you can sit back and go, well, I've done it. I'm a success. Now I can go take a nap. No, it's, it's, it's not, it's not a toggle switch. Like, okay, I've hit it. Now I can, now, now I can relax. Um, it, it, it is, it is true. You, you, you need to re-earn that uh, until it's, you know, until it's the lifetime achievement award that's given to you at the end of your life, then you can rest after that. But up and up until then um, it's, it's a responsibility. It's yep. a responsibility because, uh, because the people who, because w- w- when you hit any kind of achievement like that, if you're the CEO, if you're the, you know, the main keynote, or if you're in the hall of fame, if you're the Emmy award winner, I mean, whatever it is, there are people who are going to be looking at you just like we looked at those who went before us and go like, that's what I want to be when I grow up. Like it or not, you are now a role model. Like it or not, you are not, you are now a mentor, maybe not in the classic, you know, um, uh, sense, but, but you are a role model and people are looking at you, uh, for clues as to how they can get there too. Like, Okay, so what does a Hall of Famer do? What, how, how does he or she act? Um, how, what is he or she like on the platform? How do they prepare? How do they do that? Um, because they're they're looking for clues because they they want their own success. One of the first questions you asked me were, "Who are some of my mentors growing up?" And we all have them, whether we know it or not. And what we're doing, and you know, our first ones are typically are our parents, and sometimes they're good at it, and sometimes they're not good at it. Um, but again, you know, we're, we're looking to those people as, you know, like, how, how do I behave? It's especially important because, again, right now, again, I don't know when people are listening to this, but we're going through a time of unprecedented turmoil right now with the, with, with the virus and being quarantined and things like that. And people are looking, your, your team members, um, in, in, in whatever kind of team that is, you know, the, the, whoever looks up to you, they are looking at you now for clues as to how they need to be feeling and behaving. Like, are you panicked? Because if you're panicked, that's telling them they, you know, that, that it's time to panic. Are you calm? Now you may be panicking on the inside, um, or you may not be, but they're, but they are looking to you for like clues on, you know, clues, how to behave. Um, if, okay, I'm a pilot. Um, I've had a, a, a situation where my engine went out, you know, single engine airplane. I didn't have any passengers. But, you know, we've all flown, most of us have flown on airplanes. If there's turbulence, do you want the pilot to come on the, 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 the loudspeaker, the, the, the intercom, and say, oh, my God, Bray, I hope we get through this. But, you know, no. You want to say, this, uh, this is your pilot. Uh, listen, we're experiencing some light turbulence. So, okay, he seems calm, so I guess everything's going to be okay. It's, it's, it's that responsibility that comes with leadership, whatever leadership looks like for you. Oh, it's great. Uh, switching gears here, and I want to kind of address the next – round which is the rapid fire round and this is some of the fun Uh-oh. questions bill and it's like the first response that comes to your mind that's really yeah, what this is. My, my first response <laughs> so the first question for you bill is are you ready <laughs> i um no no there, that's the first thing that came to my mind no i am not ready for this all right so we'll get uh, we'll go with it anyway okay so the okay, first so one is basically my answer didn't matter you, you didn't care <laughs> okay so uh who's your favorite music band oh the beatles Absolutely, the Beatles. I'm actually one of the world's foremost experts on the Beatles. So yeah, and one of my one my my very first one of my first keynotes is all about this. What's one thing you can do that might surprise other people? Anything that you do that might surprise other people that people don't know about? 
Well, let's see. We've already talked about piloting an airplane, playing a bunch of musical instruments, and milking a cow. Um, wow. What else can I do? Um, I'm actually not a bad amateur magician. I'm not a great one, but I'm not. Ba- I'm still a card-carrying member and have been for probably 30 or 40 years, a card-carrying member of the International Brotherhood of Magicians. Wow. I didn't know that about you. Mm-hmm. Uh if you could have witnessed one event in history, what would that be, Bill? Um, this is going to sound weird because I would not want to have been around for that event. But I would have liked to have seen what that asteroid looked like 65 million years ago, the one that took out the dinosaurs. I've done a little research on what things actually looked like when it was coming in. It kind of sucked the atmosphere into it. So you had this clear view of the sky, of the stars and everything. And then... Um, that must have been a great show. Mm. Um, it would be nice to have been able to see it from a distance, though. Mm. The Big Bang would have been cool, too. That's Yeah, absolutely interesting. And then uh, the other one I have for you is, if you could be successful in another profession, let's say not an entertainer, not a professional speaker, not a musician, which oh, would you choose? Wow. Well, you took away my default, which is you know playing, you know being being a rock and roll drummer. Um, so you took that away with the with the musician. Um, another profession aside from, um, probably a teacher, mm. which oddly enough is kind of what you and I do in a way as well. Uh, but I think that's just uh, among the most noble professions there is. That's great. And then uh, one final question from the rapid fire round. And this is, if you could have any message of your choice on a billboard bill, what would that be? (laughs) (laughs) Send money. Um, (laughs) uh, Message on a billboard. Um, Yeah. You know, I told you I was a Beatles guy. George Harrison, who left us in November of 2001, his final words were love one another. Mm. So I think just be kind. Be nice. Or to put it another way, don't be an ass. You know, there's we all have our problems. We all have our issues we're going through. Don't make it any tougher. Like, especially, again, now we're going through crisis. This isn't the time to be mean to each other. We all, you know, we're all going through our stuff. And by stuff, you can, you know, insert your own word, whatever yeah. word you want. So let's don't make it worse. Just don't be a jerk. Be nice. Love one another. Yep. Just be kind. I love that. Uh, and then this is our final uh, section, and I've got three final questions for you, Bill. And the first one is, uh, are you working on any current business or personal passion project? Uh, are you looking forward to it in the next few months or year? Yeah, I am. And, and, and part of it is, is by, you know, by um, you know, they say uh, necessity is a mother, which it is, uh, also the mother of invention. Um like many people in our profession, I'm working on, on online curriculums, uh, online courses, online webinars, ways, different ways of delivering my expertise, which is forcing me to reevaluate my, my expertise and look at it differently. Because as you know, as a, as a keynoter, so much of what we do is the show. You know, we get on the stage in front of hundreds or thousands of people and we do the show. Now the content is there. But half of it also, if, especially if you're an opening keynote or a closer, which is what I tend to be, at least half of it is the show. And that doesn't translate 
online, you know, through Zoom or Skype or something like that. So I'm having to really take a look at, okay, what is my thought leadership? Uh, what is my intellectual property? I've got it, but it tends to uh, take a back seat to the show. And now I've got to bring it up to the like, oh my God. Again, it's like like re you know, reevaluating, re-looking at what I've got. So like, oh, you know what? This actually is good. This is good content. This would work. Because I can't I can't rely on the razzle dazzle, because the razzle dazzle doesn't really work in this medium that we're in, the medium of audio, you know, a podcast or a video or something like that. So um and it's actually kind of exciting re-looking at those things. And now, how can people find out more about these uh, online courses and your upcoming projects? Can they go to your website, or is there a section that they need to... Um... Yeah, no, they, they, they can go to my website. I can't guarantee everything's on there, because the things that are in development, obviously I'm not going to put on the website yet. But the website is really easy. It's bill at... or That's that's the email address. It's billstainton.com. B-I-L-L-S-T-A-I-N-T-O-N.com. Or if you want, you can go to producingresults.com. That's easier to remember, and it'll take you to the exact same place. Okay, and and uh, we'll include that in the show notes as well. And uh, the next question is, uh, what are three things you're grateful for in life today, Bill? Wow. Um, well, the first one we've already talked about is that my parents, my uncle, my grandfather instilled in me the love of learning just for the sake of learning. You know, just, uh, I'm, I am... I am never happier, with maybe one exception, but aside from that, I'm never happier than when I'm learning something new, whether it's learning a new language, a new instrument, uh, a new skill set. Uh, you know, I'm, that's, that's my happy place when I'm learning something new. Uh, second thing, this is, these are three things I'm grateful for, right? Okay. Uh, the second one is the sense of humor. Um, my sense of humor has basically brought me everything worthwhile in my life. Virtually every great relationship I have had or have is a result of my sense of humor. Certainly my job, the Turning Point job with Almost Live, that was a comedy show. I never would have been involved with that show if it weren't for a sense of humor. And I got that from, from my parents, primarily my mom, but, but my dad to some extent also. Um, that is just that, – that that's my superpower. That's – you know, um, and some people appreciate it and some people don't, but that's, that's been the superpower. The third thing, which is really coming home now is, um, community, my communities. We were talking about this. Uh, you and I are both members of the national speakers association. One of the things that this involuntary isolation that we're going through in this moment, and hopefully there'll be people listening to this who will go like, Oh yeah, that's right. That happened because there is an end to this. I mean, it, you know, this, this will pass, but one thing it's really brought home is how valuable those relationships are. You know, so for whoever's listening, if you're a member of an association, whether it's the national speakers association, uh, you know, whatever, whatever kind of association you have, um, this is not, this is the time to embrace that association and those members, that sense of community. Um, if it's with your neighbors, your family, uh, your old high school and college friends, whatever, uh, we are a social animal. And we tend to take that for granted. Who, who was it that said something like, we, we, we don't tend to miss things until we no, no longer have them or something like that. You know, we, we don't value things until we no longer have them, something like that. Well, 
our ability to be in community face to face, you know, like in real physical reality has been taken away from us. And now we're starting to realize, oh, you know what? I kind of took that for granted, which is why it's so great that we live in a time that if we have to be isolated, we're isolated when there is Zoom and Skype and, you know, FaceTime, you know, and, you know, so we can be in touch with people and we're finding that we're being in in touch more. We're at, we're reaching out to people more and more and more because we need that. So that just so community, so lifelong learning, sense of humor and an appreciation of community. And there's various communities of which I'm, I'm a part. That's so great. And uh, so, Bill, I want to acknowledge you uh, for a couple of things. One is, you know, every conversation I've had with you, uh, you know, be it at NSA or on our uh, Zoom calls and, you know, and I look up to you as a mentor because I get to learn so much from you every time I talk to you and you inspire greatness. And, uh, you know, it's just your your passion for learning is something that uh, is incredible. It's amazing. And, you know, you all make all of us laugh and your presence in the community is just uh, it's just something that we all value and cherish uh and this is i know speaking for uh some of our nsa members uh that you know we look up to you as a role model or a champion and you know you've really been a uh amazing uh presence well, for all of well, us so thank well, you well you all need to aim higher <laughs> <laughs> so one final no, question bill <laughs> thanks cal yeah my pleasure and uh, one final question and this is uh, how we wrap up all our interviews and that is why do you think people should listen to the wisdom of friends? Oh, I think it's because this is an eclectic collection of people you bring together. Um, we talked about that, you know, learning and connecting dots and, and uh, having a wide range of interests. And clearly you, because the people that you have on this show, um, you, you've got, you do have a focus for this show. But you approach it from so many different angles because of all the various people that you've got. So um, it's just a great way to be well-rounded and listen to different perspectives. I'm sure you've had people on who have said things that directly contradict some of the things that I've said. That's cool. That's awesome. That's fantastic. Um, doesn't mean I'm right. Doesn't mean I'm wrong. It could be in certain circumstances this and certain, certain circumstances that. But we've all had different paths to get to where we are. We've all had different experiences and um, it's, you know, and we, we learn from others and this is just a great showcase of a multitude of experiences, a multitude of expertises. It's kind of an awkward word and a multitude of perspectives. And that's, that's priceless. Thank you, Bill. I really appreciate uh, the feedback and uh, taking you taking the time to be on the show and sharing uh you know, your wisdom with all of us. So I appreciate our conversation. Absolutely. My pleasure, Cal. Thanks so much for inviting me. And uh, with that, uh, we'll uh, wrap up. Thank you again. And if you like what you heard, please share. Don't be shy. Thanks for listening to the Wisdom of Friends show with Cal Aras. If you enjoyed today's show, head over to wisdomoffriends.net to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover our fantastic bonus content. We hope you'll pass along our web address, wisdomoffriends.net, to your friends and colleagues. Be sure to check out our archive section on the website for previous episodes and subscribe on iTunes, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. This has been a Seven Symphonies production Join us next time for another edition of The Wisdom of Friends.